All right, 2 Samuel 22. 2 Samuel 22. The beginning of 2 Samuel 22, it tells us that David originally wrote this song when he first became king, and uh, the focus of it was God's protection from Saul when he was on the run. But this song is also located in Psalm 18. And so what's interesting here is what 2 Samuel 22, which chronologically is now at the end of David's reign, we're seeing that David is republishing the song at the end of his life with a, a few minor changes, which is what this chapter is here. Last week, we covered the first half of the song where David paints this amazingly vivid picture of God spreading wide the boundaries of natural law to reach down from heaven and snatch David from the clutches of death. And then David closed off that first half by explaining why God did that, because number one, God loved him, but then also because of certain attributes in David's life. And while that might seem like a good spot to end the song, it's not the end. The last half of the song, it contains preaching and praise so that we might learn from David's faith and for his hope for the future. A good future for him and a good future for us because our God never changes. So chapter 22, we're going to pick it up in verse, I'm actually going to start reading in verse 20 and then we'll pick up the study in verse 26. Verse 20 says, he brought me forth also into a large place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands as he recompensed me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also upright before him and have kept myself from mine iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyesight. So David, you know, he, we talked about this last week, but he explains that first off, the Lord did it just because he loved him. He delighted in him. But also, there was a way that David conducted himself here that he could trust the Lord to see him through this. We talked about how a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways and cannot expect that the Lord will answer him. It doesn't mean God won't. It just means you can't, you can't expect that he will. And so here David explains. He goes, I had multiple opportunities to try to take things into my own hands, but I trusted the Lord. I maintained my innocence in this endeavor. And we know that from reading through First and Second Samuel that he did that with Saul. But now in verse 26, David pivots a little bit, and now he explains how doing things God's way gives greater glimpses of God. And, and in doing so, he gives us general principles for how God interacts with, with us, how he interacts with everyone. Verse 26, he says, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. And with the upright, you will show yourself upright. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the froward, you will show yourself unsavory. The word here, merciful, it is that word said, that Old Testament equivalent of agape. It refers to faithful love, loyal devotion, unconditional love. And so he says, with those who show faithful love to you, to the Lord, you will show yourself, this is a different word, merciful. It means to conduct yourself as trustworthy. Now, David isn't implying that God could be unfaithful. That's not what he's saying here. That's not possible. God just is faithful. It's his character. 
What he's saying is that when I look to the Lord with faithful love for help, that God will show that he's worthy of being trusted. And how many of you have ever found that? When you trusted the Lord for something and you saw that he was faithful to his promises. David says this is a general principle, and as a result, it gives us a greater glimpse of God. When we decide to be faithful to him, we see that he is faithful to us and that he's worthy of being trusted. He says, with the upright man, you will show yourself to be upright. The upright man is a person who is not liable. In other words, you, you, couldn't, you can't find anything on him. You can't, sometimes in political races, you know, they have people hired that go find dirt, right? Go find the dirt. And the idea here is there's no dirt on this person's life. They're not liable because of sin or wrongdoing because they've kept themselves clean from that. They've stayed on the straight and narrow. With that person, the Lord, he says, you will show uh, yourself to be upright. God will show that he doesn't lack any moral qualities. Now again, David is not implying that God will do something sinful to us if we're not perfect. That's not what he's saying. Well, if you're not upright, then God's going to be sinful to you. That's not his point, because that's also not possible. God is pure. God is holy. What he is saying is that God will show us how perfect he is when we seek to do things his way. I have found that out in my own life on many times when I just say, Lord, I'm going to do things your way. And then you just realize how, how perfect God is. Why would that be important to us? It's important to us because there are many times in life when God says, hey, this is how you handle this situation, and everything inside of us is going, that's not going to work. <laughs> if I do that, I'm going to get trampled on. Or if I do that, I'm going to get disabused. If I do that, I'm not going to prosper. And so very often we kind of have this internal wrestling match with God, like Jacob, right? Where we're saying, God, I know you love me and I, and I know you're good, but doing things this way means I lose. Doing things your way means I lose. I, I got into this discussion with somebody the other night and, and just out, out and about and they, they mentioned something, and I said, oh, well, you know, you, you know that, that happened because you were doing this. And they're like, no, no, you're supposed to be doing this, and that's, that's why this happened. You weren't where you're supposed to be. And I, and I was like, well, well <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you're correct, you know, but I don't want to argue with whatever. And he's like, just do what you're supposed to do. And then he cursed at me. And I was like, okay. And the Lord's like, walk away. I'm like, Lord, I'm right. <laughs> if I walk away, he's going to think he was right. And the Lord's like, so? And in that moment, that wrestling match started. It's like, God, I, I lose face if I walk away. You know, and then, of course, you get all the images of the cross. You get all the, you know, and then, but you're still wrestling internally. But that was wrong. He shouldn't have wronged me like that. And the Lord's like, that's, I'm not dealing with him. I'm dealing with you right now. Walk away. And you know, as I walked away and I laid it down, tried to take it back up again about 18 times on the way on the drive back home, but kept laying it down. And eventually I went to bed and I laid me down and I slept peacefully. And I woke up this morning and I, I don't know where it was, but I, was, I think it was halfway here or something like that. That little tiny, still small voice in the back of your head said, see, that wasn't so bad. I thought, oh Lord, I almost did something really stupid but I didn't think it was so stupid in the moment, <laughs> right? <laughs> and and that's, that's the issue here is that when we're going to act in an upright way, the Lord shows us my way's best. 
you will get a greater glimpse of that. And then thirdly, he says, with the pure, you will show yourself pure in verse 27. That refers to moral purity. When we decide to act in moral purity, God will show us that He doesn't ever do anything impure, that he, everything He does is right and proper. Everything He does is morally pure. There's no mistake to His way. There's no wrongness to His way. You ever had something in your life where you did something and it worked out, but you, there was a party that just thought, was that really the best way to do that? But when it says when you're pure in how you handle it, and you see that that's how God does things, you never have to worry about that. You get a greater glimpse of the Lord in His heart, how He does things. In contrast, he says, or at least similarly, but with a different mindset, with the froward, the word there means that which is crooked or distorted from the right path, he says, you will show yourself unsavory. That's interesting. It means that God will appear to be as a fool, one who makes no sense in what they do. In other words, if I'm going to turn off the path and I'm going to go down this road, God's going to, basically the ways that He explains how He does things will make Him look foolish. I mean, think of Peter. Remember Jesus explains, you know, Peter has this great moment of faith, right? He's like, who do men say that I am, you know? And some say this prophet, some say this, this, and who do you say that I am? And Peter, he's the guy who stands up and goes, you're the Christ, the Son, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Nailed it, right? And, and Jesus explains, Peter, you didn't figure that out on your own. The Lord revealed it to you, but you're right. You're right. And on that confession of faith, I'm going to build my church. That's what, that's, that's what it's all going to be about. That's how the church is going to be built, is upon that kind of confession of faith. Well, it's not just a few verses later. Jesus is explaining, now guys, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten and arrested and all these things. And what does Peter do? He pulls him aside and he goes, not so, Lord. That's not, that's not the plan. That's not the plan. That's foolish. That, that's, that's a mistake. Peter was still crooked. That path that he was going was crooked. In fact, we know it was crooked because when Jesus addresses Peter, he says to him, he goes, get thee behind me, Peter. Satan. That's the origin of that thought process. It's crooked. It's off the path. Doing things God's way gives us a deeper glimpse of how awesome God is and how awesome His ways are. But doing things in opposition to God's way, it muddies our understanding of God. It begins to muddy our understanding of God. And so, which way would you rather live, knowing God better or being confused about Him? Probably one of the most common scenarios of, of someone coming to me as looking for pastoral counsel is, I disobeyed God, I'm in trouble, why doesn't God love me? That scenario is probably the most common scenario of someone seeking my pastoral counsel. I disobeyed God, things didn't work out, why doesn't God love me? It's exactly what David's talking about here. You decided to become froward. You know, you went off the path. Things didn't work out, and now you're confused about God. That's how it works. So we don't want to do that. <laughs> we want to not be confused about the Lord. We want to know Him better. So David explains, this is how God works. So live appropriately. Verse 28. And not only does God work that way, but God has a tenderness in His heart towards those who are oppressed. He says, and the afflicted people you will slave. The word afflicted, it means those who have low status in society, the poor and the oppressed. 
With them, it says his heart is tender. He will save them. But your eyes are upon the haughty that you may bring them down. The haughty person is someone who lifts themselves up, who exalts or honors themselves. God has a tenderness in his heart towards the humble and those who are mistreated because they are humble. Don't mess with them. (laughs) But rich or poor, whether you're rich or poor, God is opposed to all who are prideful. Even if you don't think you can get any lower in your status in society, God will take you there if you refuse to humble yourself. I've seen some of the most prideful people are people who have nothing to be proud about. So God has a tender heart, and I want God to have a tender heart towards me, so I want to stay humble. I don't want to find myself fighting against the Lord because I'm honoring myself or exalting myself. Verse 29, now David, he was one of these afflicted people that God saved. And so he says, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and the Lord will lighten my darkness. For by you I have run through a troop. By my God have I leaped over a wall. It's interesting, this is one of the small changes David makes when he republishes this song at the end of his life. In Psalm 18.28, it says, for you will light my candle, O Lord, and the Lord will enlighten my darkness. That's different than you are my lamp, O Lord. David's first song, when he first wrote it, it focused on how he himself was a light to the nation. He was the candle, and that God had planned to use him in this special way in the nation, and how he wrote in that first song that God had kept that light going by, by rescuing him from Saul. That's the idea when he first wrote that song. But looking back now at the end of his life, David says, Lord, you're not just the oil and the wick that's lighting my candle. You're the entire lamp. If you're not shining through me completely, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. If any of my own light's getting out, and that's all that's getting out, well, then I'm not going to be the blessing you designed me to be. And so what's interesting about that is neither idea is incorrect. When David first wrote the song, there's nothing wrong with the idea, Lord, you're the one that lights my candle, that allows me to be that light and that influence in the world to your people. But they just give a different perspective. One is based on where David was in his earlier life. It's focused on keeping him going. And this one's on later in life when he realizes that God is his all in all. And so because God is David's all, he says, the Lord will, will lighten my darkness. He'll turn darkness into light. God brings light into David's hopeless situations. And that light enables David not just to survive, but to move forward. I have a bracelet here. I've, I talk about it a lot because it's important to me. It's called Steps of Faith. You only really have two directions you're going as a Christian. You're either sliding backwards, right, or you're moving forward. Sometimes, though, it feels like you're not going anywhere, you know? And there are those moments when you feel like you're not going anywhere, you, you know, you want to just give up. And I was in one of those moments in my life. I remember being at a conference, and the little band they give you to show which lunch you have, you know, it said that was, had the theme of the conference, which was Steps of Faith. And, uh, you know, I was so discouraged, I was ready to give up, and the Lord, you know, just very gently said to me through the teachings, He said, well, just give me... Give me one more step. Just take one more step forward. I'm not asking you to take 30 steps or 70 steps or three years worth of steps. Just take one more step with me. Just do today with me. Just take today. 
I thought, well, what's on the plate today? I've got like three more conference sessions, go to dinner, you know, I guess I can do that. And every day, it was that same thing, just give me today. Don't worry about everything that's down the road, give me today. And so that kind of became, you know, kind of my thing. It's like, okay, Lord, I'm giving you today. You know, if I think about tomorrow, I'm probably not going to be able to give you today, so I'm just giving you today. What's on my plate today? All right, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do this. I'm going to love my wife, love my kids, and do today, right? And so I never took that band off, and so my wife eventually got me a, a bracelet because the band was starting to get all, you know, gnarly and stuff. But the point is, is David, when the Lord rescued him from Saul, it wasn't just so he could stand there and go, Whew, all right, let's just hold on. You know, he, he wanted to move, God wanted him to move forward, and David did. He said, for by you, <laughs> I've run through a troop. The word there means to run through, it means to run toward or to run against. A, a troop here refers to any construction that stops advancement. So it could be a segment of an army, or it could be a wall, it could be any type of defensive construction, whether it's people or materials, that stops you from advancing. And so he says, by you, you brought darkness, to, uh, light to my darkness. And so through you, I am moving forward. I'm running toward this obstacle that looks like it's going to rebuff me, that I won't be able to keep moving forward. He says, by my God, have I leapt over a wall to scale one of those defensive things. Whether you're attacking an enemy fortification or an enemy army, the soldier's job is to overrun the defense that's in front of you and remove the advantage it has. That's your job. And so through the Lord, David had punched through many obstacles that his enemies had put in front of him to take the objective that he was marching toward. And so God's light in David's life enabled him to go from running for his life to successfully going on the offense. This is the concept behind Jesus' promise in Matthew 16, 18, where he says, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Gates are not an offensive weapon. I've never seen anyone running at a defensive army with gates as their weapon. Gates are a defensive structure. The gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. As my church is moving forward, those hell gates, you're going to knock them down and take background from the enemy. It's why the armor of God is both defensive and offensive. Quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We can be ready for the wiles, the traps of the enemy, the snares of the enemy, but we also have the sword of the Spirit and prayer to go on the offensive. We hold our ground, but we are also called to take back ground from the enemy. Now, the question might be asked, why let us go on the defensive at all? Doesn't that sound counterproductive? Shouldn't we just be always moving forward? Do trials imply a failure on God's part somehow? Not at all, David says in verse 31. He says, as for God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a buckler to all them that trust in Him. I love here where he says the, His way is perfect. It means without defect, unobjectionable. You cannot bring up any objections to His way because it's unblemished. It is without defect. And that truth, that concept, that God's way is perfect, that must be the starting point whenever we evaluate life circumstances. You have to start there. If you don't start there, that God doesn't make mistakes and that God's way is best, it's foolish pride. Any other starting point for evaluating the circumstance you find yourself in is foolish pride. We start with the truth. The truth is God's way is best. He doesn't make mistakes. 
And you can add to it, he loves me. <laughs> you can add those things. That those are the starting point. Like every time, because I'm an individual that is, I am prone to depression. I am prone to seeing the worst in everything. I am prone to freaking out. That is me. My, I had a, a youth leader, and she said, Will, for you, you have an 11th commandment. Thou shalt not freak out. Because I do. And so every time we get in that situation where the blood pressure starts to rise, you go, what are we going to do? I start off with this. I know he loves me. I know he doesn't make mistakes. I know his way is best. That's the starting point of every conversation you're going to have. And when it's not the starting point of every conversation I have, in my foolish pride, I start heading down a wrong path. But when I start there, when you start there, you will see that God can be trusted. He says, the word of the Lord is tried. It means something that's already been refined. Metal that is precious because all the impurities have been removed already. Now, man's thoughts and man's words might have some merit at times. There are times when I've sought counsel for things the Bible didn't talk about and got good counsel. Hey, this is how you know you go about buying a house. Don't do this. Make sure you check this. My Bible doesn't tell me those things. It gives some principles about being wise with decisions, but it doesn't say make sure. Like the th- thing we learned from the first time that I bought a house was make sure you check every outlet because the first house we bought, we didn't do that, and it turned out like six of them didn't work. So now anytime we've done house searching, one of the things we do is, I said, plug something in everything. But I had gotten other advice. We bought a home that kept me from making those mistakes. That's a good thing. I'm not saying that man doesn't have any good ideas ever. Man's thoughts and words might have some merit at times, but they aren't precious. They aren't precious. That's what this word tried means. They are flawed because they are mingled with impurities. What kind of impurities? Well, my incomplete access to information. My inadequate ability to 100% accurately access the information I do have access to. My selfish desire that often colors my conclusions. And my pride that overlooks possible mistakes. David says God's Word is way better than that. It's been refined already. It's already had all those impurities removed from it. And so while men wrote these words, they were inspired by God in a way that we can trust them. They're precious. He is a buckler to all them that trust in Him. You see, when I trust what God says in His Word, He protects me like a shield from all those flaws and all the dangers that my flaws bring to my decision-making process. And because when I trust in God's Word, I am recognizing, as David says here, that God stands alone as the one to be trusted. Verse 32, for who is God save the Lord? And who is a rock save our God? There is no one else out there, no other being in existence with complete information, the perfect ability to properly access that information, and the perfect character to act correctly in light of that information. Only Jehovah has that. Do you believe that? Whether we do or not is, shows how we respond to situations. And who is a rock save our God? Even if I or some other person could achieve what God is, God alone has the power to intervene. 
Even though I might somehow, let's say I could get all the information God has and, and even have the character to be able to act correctly in light of it, I still don't have the all-omnipotence that God has to intervene with it. He alone is the one who is the source of my defense and my offense. And so David says in verse 33, God is my strength and power, and He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like hinds feet, and He sets me upon my high places. Here David, is start, he starts with the defense here. God's my, my strength. It means my place of protection. He's my power, my ability to accomplish a task. It's interesting, in Psalm 1832, David, when he first wrote the song, he says, it is God that girds me with strength. That's different than saying he is my strength. When David first wrote the song, he saw the Lord as the source of these things, that he was the source of David's strength and the source of David's power. But at the end of his life, David is more aware of just how much it's not really him doing much of anything. It's just the Lord doing it through him, the Lord doing it through him. God isn't just a resource for us to pull from. He is our source from beginning to end. He says, he makes, my, he makes my way perfect, innocent, blameless. You know, David experienced more than uh, God's strength to stand his ground. He experienced God's power to stand his ground with blameless character. Like when I wanted to stand my ground last night, it was not with blameless character. There was offense and anger and self-righteousness all right there. But David, he says, the Lord helped me. He made my way perfect, innocent, blameless. He experienced God's power to do what the task that God put in front of him with blameless character, a character that could not be touched even by perilous circumstances. For he says, he makes my feet like hinds feet, and he sets me upon my high places. The word for hinds here, usually you think of like a deer, right, when you think of someone with hinds feet. But this word was a very broad word in Hebrew, and it could also refer, and in this case does, to the mountain goats. The mountain goats, these these creatures are psycho. I one time, somebody told me, said, you need to watch this video of these mountain goats. And I was like, why don't I watch a video of mountain goats? I don't care about mountain goats. I said, you need to watch it. And it's this video of these mountain goats, and they are climbing on an entirely vertical dam. Google it. No, don't Google it. YouTube. YouTube. It's on YouTube. Just Google Ibex climbs a dam. It'll be the first thing that pops up. And if you're queasy with heights, don't watch it. Because these things are like way up on this huge dam, and they're just walking across like it's just flat ground. But it's entirely vertical. And this is what David's talking about here. He says, by trusting God, I could escape my enemies even when my back was to a wall that's unclimbable. He gives me hinds feet in high places, and he sets me above upon my high places where I can't be reached by mine enemy. Isn't that cool? So God was David's defense, but David says God is also my offense. Verse 35 He teaches my hands to war so that a bow of steel is, King James says, broken by my arms, but the word here actually means to bend or set. So it's either to bend it so you can put the string in or to bend it to use the bow. 
So he says, he teaches my hands to, to war, to engage in combat, to go on the offensive so that a bow of steel is bent or set by my arms. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness has made me great. It's interesting, uh, steel bows were discovered in ancient Persia and India. They, all the time, you might even have a note in your Bible that says, well, this means bronze or brass. The reason they said that is because they didn't think they had that product in that region of the world at that time. But recently, we've discovered these steel bows in Persia and India. Uh, they were weapons that were primarily used by the wealthy, and they were owned by the wealthy and only able to be used by the most strong warriors. They were exceptionally fast and deadly because of the material was just, it was stronger. Now, David isn't necessarily saying he used one of these bows here. What he's saying is that God's instruction enabled him to be strong enough in battle to use this elite kind of weapon. He had no limitations, he says, when I, when I trust the Lord. When I'm moving forward into battle, I'm going on the offense, I have no limitations when I'm trusting in the Lord. I don't have limitations in resources or in ability. He explains, you have given me the shield of your salvation. The word here, shield, was necessary when you were advancing on a foe. This is not the shield to kind of protect yourself as you're on the defense. This is the one you put in front of yourself as you're moving forward, charging the enemy so you don't get taken out by a spear or by an arrow. And then he says, and your gentleness has made me great. It means you're kind answer your response to my prayers. You know, David <laughs> grew up as a shepherd. Not just any shepherd, but a shepherd in a little-known family, so much so that even though he'd been working for Saul for, you know, for a while, that when David fought the Goliath and killed him, that he turned to Abner and he goes, whose family is this guy from? He's got to have some lineage, some warrior heritage to do something like this. And Abner goes, I don't know. I don't know what family he's from. It's not, I don't know. When David comes in, they ask him, and he's like, my, my dad's just Jesse from Bethlehem. I haven't had any training. David, who grew up like that, became the greatest warrior that Israel had known. He would lead Saul's armies after that from victory after victory after victory. And David says that he achieved that greatness of going on the offense for Israel because God answered his prayers. And God reached down like a shield to protect his advances against Israel's enemies. And so in verses 37 through 43, David paints vivid pictures of how God did this for him. He says in verse 37, you have enlarged my steps under me so that my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn again. I didn't retreat until I had consumed them. And I had consumed them and wounded them that they could not arise. Yea, they are fallen under my feet. David says, you have enlarged, verse 7, you've made wide or roomy my steps under me, the, the path that I've set my feet on as I'm advancing against the enemy. Listen, you could be the most skilled spearman or swordsman in an army back then, but all it took was one person to trip you or for you to lose your footing and the greenest soldier could kill you. When David fought, he says, no one got close enough to even mess with my footing. I never tripped. I never stumbled. 
And so he says, I pursued mine enemies. I destroyed them. I was always moving forward. I did not turn again. When David was out against Israel's enemy, he didn't know the meaning of retreat because he never had to do it. It was constant advancement until he achieved complete victory with them under his feet. The subjugation of your enemy, you have your foot on your enemy's neck. Surrender, absolute, abject defeat. Do you have a bit of an idea of why Israel's soldiers loved following David so much? Why they sang songs about him? This guy didn't lose. But David gives all the credit to God. He said it was all the Lord. Verse 40, why did this happen? For you have girded me with strength to battle. You're the one who has armed me or prepared me with strength. It means capacity, faculty, efficiency. God supernaturally empowered David to be good at combat. So even when somebody rose up and said, I can take that guy, David always won. No matter how much hatred fueled their desire to take him out, David always won. Verse 41, you have also given me the necks of my enemies that I might destroy them that hate me. Verse 42, they looked, but there was none to save, even unto the Lord, but he did not answer them. He says, there were people that word got out about my trust in the Lord, and there were people who tried to imitate that. There are people that called out to the Lord. They began to call on the Lord in battle when they would face me, but God didn't answer them like he answered me. Now, when David says they looked to the Lord and God didn't answer them, God doesn't, you know, he's not picking favorites here. That's not the point. The point is, is this was not genuinely looking unto God. Who's David fighting? He's not fighting fellow Israelis. He's fighting Gentiles. He's fighting pagans. You know, he's fighting idolaters. So these people were calling on the name of the Lord like a talisman, which means word of David's trust in the Lord for his battle prowess had spread beyond Israel so that other warriors began imitating him. Now, we are never told in Scripture what David did for word of this faith that he had to spread. We know we read about how he would consult the Urim and the Thummim or the high priest about, hey, you know, we want the battle plan to come from the Lord. Hey, just go out and fight him, you'll win. All right, let's do that. Lord, what do we do this time? Don't go out and fight him. Go around the other side and fight him. And when you hear the, the trees blowing, that's when you go. So, I mean, maybe that's possible, but David seems to imply this was even before that time when he was in charge, when he was king. And so, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly what David did for word of his faith to spread like this. Did he gather the soldiers around for prayer? Were Bible verses plastered on his armor? Was his spear carved with pictures of tiny cucumbers and the human Hebrew letters declared Jehovah is bigger than the boogeyman? If you watch VeggieTales, you, under, you got that joke. I don't know what David did, but they knew it. They knew it. And those that hated David tried to make a brand of it, but it failed because the Lord wasn't going to answer those cheap imitations. Their confidence in a ritual or a talisman that had God's name on it was misplaced because when they came at David with their superior upbringing, their superior training, David smashed them. Look at verse 43. Then did I beat them as small as the dust of the earth. I did stamp them as the mire of the street and did spread them abroad. It tells you something about a man who 
Maybe he doesn't have the best training and maybe he doesn't come from the best family. But if he'll simply just trust the Lord, what he can accomplish compared to someone with all the training and all the upbringing and all the clout and all the status and all the resources when God is just a talisman to them. Do you treat God like a talisman? A good luck charm? Or do you generally trust him and his ways? Well, God empowered David to do this against Israel's enemies, but also against enemies from within. Look at verse 44. You have also, so in addition to this offensive against enemies from without, he says, you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people, the conflicts and disputes of my own people. You have kept me to be the head of the heathen, a people which I knew not shall serve me. David had been rescued by God from Saul and so many others who plotted his murder. And God did so until those men were removed. He says, you kept me from all that. Verse 44, you kept me to be the head of the heathen. The word means you watched over me until I was able to achieve this position. I was able to get to this status where I was head over even Gentile nations. God had preserved David until those men who wanted his life from within Israel were removed from the picture, and then David could be raised up to the throne. And thus, David went from the bottom of the food chain, a shepherd with no training, with no status, all the way to the top, ruling over not just Israel, but foreign nations he had never even interacted with as a soldier. Verse 45, strangers shall submit themselves unto me. As soon as they hear, they shall be obedient unto me. Strangers, he says, they shall fade away and they shall be afraid out of their close places. The word there, submit themselves, in verse 45, it means to cower in fear. Foreigners, people I've never met before, are going to cower in fear when they come before me. As soon as they hear, they'll be obedient unto me. As soon as they hear what I, I say they need to do, they'll say, yes, sir. Strangers shall fade away. It means to lose heart, to have a fearful attitude. And they shall be even afraid, he says, out of their close places, even in their strongholds, far away from my presence, they'll be scared to go against me. When you think about who David became, it's pretty miraculous, isn't it? It's not just that he started as a shepherd, but he became a captain no enemy could defeat. Then he became a fugitive who ended up a king over other kings. Crazy, crazy when you think about it. Sounds a little bit like another king of kings, doesn't it? Born in a manger, rather than living as a warrior, he lived like a rabbi, died like a criminal, but then he was raised to life and glory, and he's coming soon to reign over all the earth as king of kings and lord of lords. Do not forget God's plan when you feel outmanned and you feel overwhelmed. There were many stages where David could have doubted God's presence, could have doubted God's plan for his life. And a few times David did. But God did not fail. He did not fail David, and he won't fail you either. Amen? So, looking at all that God did for him, David closes his song by returning to praise in verse 47. He says, The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of the rock of my salvation. 
He says, God deserves all the credit for the greatness of my life. It is God that avenges me and that brings down the people under me and that brings me forth from my enemies. You have also lifted me up on high above them that rose up against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. God, you deserve all the credit for the greatness that my life has become. I love how he starts off and he goes, the Lord lives. God doesn't make believe. He's not a lifeless statue or just some idea personified. The Lord is real. He is a person. He is our God. And He is active in the world. He hears and answers prayer. And so He says, blessed be my rock. All the credit for everything in my life belongs to Him. So you should lift Him high when you think of me, David says. Blessed, it means you should praise Him. You should praise my rock. You should exalt the God of the rock of my salvation because when you think of me and the great things that happened in my life, you should look to him. It's a great question for us because I know I look at what David did, man, I think, God, you're really awesome. Do others do that with my life? Do they glorify God when they see my accomplishments? Or do they glorify God when they see what I've come through, the trials I've come through? Or do they talk about my strength or my resolve or my skill? Do they see how much greater the Lord is or how great I am? Well, that's the end game of David's song, both when he wrote the original version and when he republishes this version. Exalt the Lord because everything good that has happened to me is because of him. And so, David, in verse 50, he says, Here's the two ways I'm going to give God credit. Therefore, I will give thanks unto you, O Lord, number one, among the heathen, and number two, I will sing praises unto your name. David closes out his song by saying, I'm going to do two things to give God the credit. Number one, I'm going to give thanks, he says, unto you, O Lord, but then he says, among the heathen. The word here to give thanks, it means to make a public confession of someone's attributes or their actions, to, to praise it, to, to thank them for it, to get, make public confession, to, to attribute to them thanks for what they ha- are, who they are, or what they've done. Now, we should thank the Lord in our private prayer time, but we should do it publicly too. We should do it in front of our spouse, in front of our kids, in front of our neighbors, in front of our coworkers, and even in front of our enemies. It's one thing to boast about your faith. Oftentimes, when I hear people talk about today, say you need to be bold. That's usually what they mean. You you need to talk about your faith. You need to not be ashamed of your faith in Christ. That's one thing. But it's entirely another thing to talk about how awesome God has been to you. Entirely different. And so I ask you tonight, do you express thanks publicly? Do your kids, your spouse, your neighbors, your coworkers, even your enemies, do they know you as someone who thanks the Lord? David says, I'm going to do it amongst the heathen. And then secondly, he says, I will sing praises unto your name. The word sing means an act of worship to God that's in a chant or in a melody. In other words, it's a, a song of some time, maybe a cappella, maybe with music. And you know, while singing to the Lord can do wonders in my heart, there are many times I've come to a time of singing to the Lord and and my heart was in a bad spot and it moved to a good spot. That is true. While that is true, though, worshiping God through song is not for 
you and me. It's not for us. It's for Him. And thus, singing to the Lord is not to be done because I like the songs or I'm in the mood. It's not done because I attach some experience in my life to a certain song or how it's sung. It's done in gratitude for what God has done and is still doing in my life. It's done because the Lord is as real today as He was in David's life and is worthy of all the credit. It's done so I can testify in front of others how awesome the Lord is. And guys, that's why new songs are written. That's why old songs are reworked, because God is always working. Amazing Grace was written because of something awesome the Lord did in John Newton's life. He wrote it because he said, God took me, I was a slaver merchant, and look at what he did in my life. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton wrote that song because it was his story. But then the song Amazing Grace was reworked because of something awesome that God did in that composer's life. And it's been reworked and it's been republished many different ways over 300 years because our awesome God is still doing awesome things in every different believer's life. And the Lord is still awesome today, right? So, we still write songs. We sing new songs to the Lord. We rework old songs because God's doing new things in our hearts. And because the Lord is still awesome, David declares, you can count on Him always being awesome. He always will be. Verse 51, He is the tower of salvation for His King. And he shows mercy to his anointed unto David and to his seed forevermore. When it says here, he is the tower of salvation for his king, it means he makes great the salvation for his king. David actually originally wrote in the song, he gives great deliverance to his king. But now he changes it to say that the Lord makes the king's rescue a great thing. David looks back at the end of his life, seeing how God impacted others through his struggles, and David concludes, it was worth it. That's what he's saying here. He wrote this way at the beginning of his life, and he said, man, (laughs) God gave great deliverance to me. But now he looks back, and he sees the impact it had on everybody else, and he doesn't just go, God, you got me out of a fix. He goes, it was worth it to be in the fix. Because, Lord, you're the one who sent me into the fix, And you're the one that brought me through it because it wasn't just about me, it was about everyone else around me too. That's what David's saying here. It was worth it. It was all worth it. Because through those trials, David and so many others had a greater experience of God's loyal love. A love that none of us deserve. Even when we're mistreated. Even when we've been wronged like David was. None of us deserve his love. And yet, we can experience it over and over again. Through those trials, David encourages us to go into the fire as well, knowing it will be worth it for us too. For he says he shows mercy to his anointed. That's that word chesed again, but it's coupled with a verb, which means God practices that loyal love. He practices that unwavering devotion, he says, to his anointed. And then he explains who that is, unto me, David, the king. But then he extends it out beyond his own life. He says God will continue to do that to his seed, David's descendants, forevermore. 
David concludes that through it all, everything he went through, that the Lord loved him unconditionally and faithfully, and therefore he knows the Lord will do the same for his descendants. Now, we are not descendants of David, right? I mean, unless you are, which would be cool, but most, I bet we're not. But while we may not be descendants of David physically, we are joint heirs with the son of David, aren't we? We're joint heir with the son of God who went by the title, the son of David. And that means that God's promise of loyal love holds true for us too. Amen? Let's all stand. Oh Lord, how we love these songs that we read about in your word because they're so human. Lord, very often we read them and and we think, well, I relate to that. Or I've been in a situation that's similar to that. Or maybe I've had that, that doubt or that fear or I've come through something that's similar to the trial that that songwriter describes. And Lord, we're so grateful for these precious songs. We're thankful for David's life, not just a song he wrote, but a song he republished so we can kind of get perspective on the early days of his reign, you know, when he had just been rescued from Saul and now at the end of his life. We see that his testimony is the same. You are faithful. You loved him, and it was worth it. So, Lord, in the midst of our own trials, in the midst of our own challenges, Lord, help us to remember that, that you are faithful, that you practice loyal love towards us, and that when we come out the other side of it, when we come to the end of our days, we will be able to declare with David, as we trusted you and you brought us through it, we'll say the same thing. It was worth it. It was all worth it. Lord, we want that to be our testimony too. So tonight, Lord, we commit to you. We want to be those who have faithful love towards you. We want to be those who are upright in how we conduct ourselves. We want to be morally pure in how we live, that we might have that greater understanding of you in all your magnificence and glory. We ask that you'd help us to do those things in Jesus' name. Amen.